WIOX is supported by you and the following underwriters. Chappie's Good Food on Main Street and Roxbury for lunch, dinner, and cocktails. And Chappie's sister restaurant, the Old Mill Steakhouse, just around the corner on Bridge Street. Chappie's open every day. The Old Mill Steakhouse, open on weekends. 607-326-7020 or chappiesgoodfood.com. Sounds Good Music House, the record shop on Main Street in Andes for new and used vinyl, including new releases and rare titles across all genres, as well as turntables, mid-century furniture, and original artwork. Sounds Good Music House buys used records, too. Open weekends and any time the doors open. More information at 845-676-6233, 845-676-6233, or soundsgoodcatskills.com. Watershed, Roxbury's coffee shop and market on Main Street in historic Roxbury. Open from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. Sunday through Wednesday with extended market hours until 6 p.m. Thursday through Saturday. Coffee, breakfast, and lunch in the cafe and in the market prepared meals to go in basics like dairy, produce, dry goods, beer, and cider. Watershed, Main Street at Roxbury, watershedroxbury.com and on Instagram at watershedroxbury. WIOX Roxbury is supported by you. And a really easy way to support WIOX is to donate your car or truck, one that you don't need anymore. You know, the one sitting out in the backfield or off the side of your driveway. We'll get the old clunker out of the way at no cost to you. But it could be worth hundreds of dollars to support WIOX. Learn more about WIOX vehicle donations at WIOXradio.org. Thank you.
Okay, you're listening to WIOX Community Radio Live and Local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20, 107.5 FM on the campus of SUNY Delhi and everywhere at WIOXradio.org on computers or them smartphones. This is from the forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest-related topic with... A bunch of people. Uh, Ryan, Zane, John, Zara. How's it going? Going well, Ryan. What's up? Um, All going pretty good. Yeah, this how you doing, Zane. Zara? Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, so we're uh, doing forestry check-in um, probably the first Wednesday of each month. We'll see if we keep doing it. But, uh, you know, just kind of uh, go around, talk about what we've been seeing out in the woods. But what, what's everyone been up to on your own time other than shop talk? Uh, I learned about uh, fly fish this weekend. That was pretty cool. Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> uh, right in um, uh, Frog Alley, that little stream there, right below the bridge, on Kelly Corner. Did it change your life? It, <laughs> no, I mean it, it was uh it was very very cool. Um, uh, a member uh and I went down there and he showed me how to read the river. Uh, showed me to look for the runs, uh, looked at the insect life as they oviposit onto the stream and how that uh, determined what kind of fly he would use and got used to different types of uh, uh, techniques. It was pretty neat. Didn't catch anything, though. <laughs> no kidding. I got close, though. Yeah. No, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a rewarding experience, but, you know... You, Spin fishermen are all right too, Zane. <laughs> well, I had one of those. Are you guys gonna fight or what? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it was neat. It's definitely something I'm gonna pursue. He he left me his uh, uh, fly rod, so I'm gonna practice on that uh, on the weekends and maybe after work. And I mean, ultimately, I just want to catch something and eat it. Are you gonna start uh, tying your own flies? Not yet. Yeah. Jeez, I mean, uh, I got just big one step fingers. at a time here, John. Well, I mean, Christ. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, chickens are great. Got plenty of feathers for you. Uh, white-tailed deer have hollow hair, so it makes the flies float. So deer hair. I got some moose hide as well. If you uh, get into it, I've got supplies. Cool. Yeah. I got to repair the the waders I was using though. It's got a little hole right at the shin, so one of my boots filled up with a little bit of water. Uh, that's not that's, good. That's fine. I I know where it is roughly, so I got to repair it. Next month you can go wet wading and just put a pair of shorts on and go walking in the stream. Yeah, yeah. Get some hey, creek you know. shoes and yeah. I got to get a fishing license though. So whoa, whoa, Jane. Uh, <laughs> Jane this is live this on is the a family show here. I mean, I stayed on the shore and I watched him. <laughs> Fly fish. All right, that's good, Zan. Uh, Jesus Christ. That's enough. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Zara, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Um, haven't been out in the forest much on my own lately. I've been busy moving. But uh, good news is, though, I'm on a, a property now, uh, someone else's property. But they've got 60 acres of forest, so I'll be able to walk around and uh, see what's going on on their property. Maybe do some, some uh, forest management there. So... Yeah. All right. John? Saw a nice buck last night. Did you? Yeah, right above my house. I was surprised at the antler development for first yeah. week of June. How big are the antlers? Um, I saw one today on a walk. 
up to its ears. Yeah. Brow tines like three, four inches. Yeah. You could tell it was going to be a nice spot. Yeah, I went up in Millbrook when I was hiking. Oh, yeah? And uh, he's just staring at me. They're pretty uh, tame this time of year, you know? Yeah. And then I went, went to go take a leak, and there was a doe looking at me, like, you know, 30 yards away. I'm like, all right, jeez. I mean, you guys don't even they don't even care. No. I've seen quite a few fawns. Most of them are tiny, tiny still. Yeah, I almost ran one over. He's running down Drybrook Road towards me. So... I stopped and, uh, you know, kind of ran up to the hood of the car like, what are you? Yeah. <laughs> and then into the field. Yeah. Cute little guy. I yeah. saw a doe and a fawn, a newborn fawn, little guy, um, in the middle of Delhi, right in town. Really? On a patch of grass right outside DA, looking very confused. Oh, there's yeah. a lot of lot of deer traffic across the, yeah, the school's yeah. yard. Saw one of the biggest bucks I've really seen in the area while uh, sitting in class there at DA. Ran right across, off the hill, jumped the fence onto the football mm. field, chased the doe around. Cool. It was great. A lot of bears. Seen a lot of bears in the last two weeks. Have you? Yeah. I've yet to see one. Yep, all of a sudden. So the last two weeks, they're just roaming all over. Although, I got to say, it's probably uh, a couple times the same bear. Young little male walking around. Had to scare him off into the woods so he wouldn't come up the hill at my chicken. So that, that was that. But so I do stand corrected. There's a little more freeze damage on the apples than I thought. Mm-hmm. I know. Not I pear. Pear are fine for me. Um, but peach are fine. My peaches are fine. Really? Yep. But my apple, uh, they're a little setback. Some are, some are, some aren't, and some are. Mine are done. Mine got hit. I thought they were okay. Yeah. I went around mowing the yard, and then I was touching touching flowers, and when you touched them, yeah. they always fell off. It seems like the higher elevations are worse. That being said, yeah, you know where our camp is. Yeah. 2,600 feet in elevation. Mm-hmm. I was up there, and those that fruit looks fine. Huh. It's, uh, I would say, pea-sized, swelled up. Looks nice. Okay. Yeah. I mean. I mean. That's pretty high, though. That's so what, those twenty six, twenty five, twenty six hundred. So I'm assuming those petals weren't even open at the time of the frost. Right. So because um, man, above a thousand feet to twenty three hundred is yeah, they got sap pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And man, the ash trees got nailed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Their leaves got frosted. Uh, red oak, white oak, even a little bit. Beach in Delaware County got hit pretty bad. Not that anyone cares, but <laughs> poor um, Beach. Um, my honey locust in my yard has it hasn't even tried to leaf back out yet. I may have lost a mulberry. It got hit really bad. Uh, the others are fine. My Where honey. I'm at, there's a uh, hickory too. Got hickory? hit. Yeah, shagbark. Oh, yeah. yeah, no kidding. Mm-hmm. They're already starting to relief though. So yeah, they look all right. They can take it. Yeah. That being said, though, I cut a, cut a red oak tree today in Delaware County. And so I, I looked at its crown while I was on the ground, and the newly formed leaves were full of holes from gypsy, gypsy moths. Oh, so yeah, gypsy unfortunately, moth. the new set of leaves that had just put energy into producing is now getting defoliated by gypsy moths. So that's not good. Yeah, gypsy moth um, anecdotally are seen to be worse in the lower elevations towards the big Delaware, um, Stone Ridge, Rondout Valley. It's worse. So it's not that bad, but there are a lot of natural um, predators against 
gypsy moth now. It's not like the 1970s and 80s when it was really a bad defoliation. There's an MPV virus. There's parasitoid wasps. So, yeah, there's fungus when the populations get pretty high too. Um, yeah, I saw saw them a few weeks ago down in Stone Ridge in Ulster County, mm-hmm. just starting on an elm tree down there. I've seen a couple of them on small bare root trees um, up here in Margaretville. So I just I pick them off because the leaf the tree I'm talking about has got like six leaves on it. It's a white oak, so I've been pretty protective of that. But hope it doesn't get worse. Yeah, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest. Tonight's topic is forestry check-in, trying to do this every first Wednesday. We have John McNaught. He's the Catskill Forest Association's Forest Program Manager. Zane Lawyer, the Education Arborist there. And Zara Bellucci, Education Forester, and myself, Ryan. Um, so, what else you guys been seeing? Notable. What have you been doing, program-wise? Members, places you've been? Things you've seen. All right, so All have, right. have you ever seen a, I mean, you've seen hand-dug wells in the Catskills. Yeah. You ever seen a really deep one? Like how would, deep we talking? Uh, the one I saw today, I couldn't have a way to measure it, but I would estimate 15 to 20 feet before it hit the water. Hmm. And um, the member thought that the water was much deeper than that. And it was perfectly laid up stone about two feet in diameter straight down. Hmm. That's cool. Really neat. And right in front of really an old cool. old foundation um, up on the hill, old old farm road going up to it. Oh, yeah? Hmm. They were thinking, thinking 1840s, 1850s. So, yeah, yeah I told them to um, grab some fishing line, put a weight on it, and send it down, see how deep that thing goes. Yeah. Because it's underneath us. No one would, you wouldn't even know. It's just this flat, moss-covered rock. And he was up there looking for morel mushrooms and stepped on the rock. And it wiggled and moved like, and you could hear the hollowness underneath it. So he peeled it up and looked underneath, and there, there it was. Really? Yeah. And it had no idea, huh? Had no it idea. Been a while. Yeah, like I said, it looks looks pristine. The water's great. Water looks great. Um, the stonework looks pristine, and it's like I said, perfectly cylindrical, about two two and a half feet in diameter, straight down. Wow. I don't know wow. how they dug it. I, I have no idea how. I'm totally ignorant to how those. Uh, the process to dig one of those. I don't know. How do you go that no deep idea. and not have the bottom collapse in? Or do you have to dig a giant pit and then build it back up and backfill it? No. I doubt it. Yeah, I doubt it. Uh, about 10 feet down, there was a couple of other feeder pipes. You can see rusted pipes coming in. Really? So at some point, they had dug in and tried to bring in maybe water from another spring or something. I don't know. Never seen anything like it. Yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know who would know, you know. Maybe Titan Well Drilling would 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 know of springs and stuff. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like I mean, like a cistern on a spring is just like a, you know, maybe three four feet deep and it's square and laid up stone usually. But this was cylindrical and a, like a well. Hmm. No kidding. Really awesome, huh? Jeez. Wow. But anyway, he's got morel mushrooms that grow there every year. He said uh, he can go up there and daily for when they are producing three four a day really yeah surprised me we'll so see how the mushrooms are this year again geez pretty dry for that i don't know i hope i hope it's not a repeat yeah last year sorry you say something yeah um i've just been out doing a lot more consultations you can they're definitely picking up lately with the warmer weather people are outside uh we're starting on the beginning of summer so i think people are are wanting to know more about their properties lately i haven't seen anything out of the ordinary but um 
coincidentally, uh, even before the smog came, I've had a lot of landowners start asking me about prescribed burns and wanting to do prescribed <laughs> burns on their property, which obviously, you know, I never really have a positive answer for them, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I looked into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to shoot something in the foot right away, but I guess another forester, I talked to her about it, and she said to hire a company to do a prescribed burn hmm. was 50 grand. Wow. And then New York State, um, it's a lot of things. you got to get that burn plan right. in. Yep. Um, need a burn boss, I believe. Yeah. Somebody who's, yeah. Hmm. So. I don't know, but we're going to talk about fires, but what, what, you going to say something? No, no, I was, what's a, I was going to ask what a burn boss is, but. I think that's just a funny title for a person who's got that higher level of, of training to be able to supervise a, a prescribed burn. Got so, it. Yeah. Yeah, anything in particular, trend-wise, people, forest owners are interested in? Um, a lot of it has been smaller properties, um, so individual tree care. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I have gotten emails and site visits uh, seeing gypsy moth around, especially, like you said, in the Rondout area, Woodstock, uh, Stone Ridge. Um, but that's the theme as of late. Not much, not much else to report, I think. I mean, healthy trees can normally take, you know, two to three years of defoliation. Right. Yeah. Typically. Yeah. How about you, Zane? What are you up to? Uh, meeting with members, <clears throat> uh, planning sites for, for trees, doing that whole thing. Um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, I'm planting a couple black willow trees along ponds this year. Um, I think that'd be a nice feature for people's ponds um many ponds i've seen are they're kind of open very sunny um so that's something i suggest and so excited to do that this year um yeah nothing much else i can remember at the moment yeah so you know you, you can't go outside right now without looking at the um haze from from fires going on in, in canada and uh, elsewhere, I guess. I don't know. Where is this going on? Nova Scotia? Quebec? I've heard Michigan, too, even. Michigan. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. All right. So this is going to set us way back on the whole, because we talk about how important fires are. We don't really get them in New York State. And uh, we've had Stephen Pine, who is the, man, that guy knows a lot about fires, historically speaking. Um, he wrote, he has a good presentation online, if you want to just, um, rather than read his books, called The Pyrocene. And he talks about humans and fire and how they've always been around. But this this whole, like, I don't want to call it smog. I, I, it sounds like pollution. Yeah. But it is fire, uh, haze, and um, people are going to be probably be more against fires. And I think the mistake people are going to make is that this is probably from climate change. I don't agree at all. <laughs> First of all, there's just less fires. Um this is – it could be a blunder from policy changes maybe, but actually there's fewer fires. The 20th century had way more fires than we do now. And, you know, what's really disconcerting to me – and you, you guys, you, know, you disagree, say whatever you want. doesn't matter to me. But um, from 1926 to 2019, um, the fires have gone way down. They were the highest from – you know, the 20s into the 1960, about 1950 or so, not only were they more, they were five times more 
and meaning they burned way more acreage. Mm. Um, and this is according to the source National Interagency Fire Center, 1926 to 2019. But what I find most disconcerting is, is if you go to their website now, and the thing about the internet is, once you put data on there, you can't really get it off. So people have the data from, from 1926 to 2019. And now, if you go there, it's only from 1983. Hmm. Now, from 1983, it hit the lowest point, and it begins to go up. I hope, I severely hope that they're not doing that for other reasons. Right. Because hmm. that is extremely misleading, disingenuous, and not scientific at all. I mean, why would you do that? 1983, why would you... And you say, well, we didn't have the accuracy back in the day. Oh, yes, we did. We, we have maps in New York State showing outlining where fires occurred mm-hmm. right. uh, since the 1800s even. I mean, the data is there. The fires actually is one of the, one of the things that were tallied by, by the USDA for a long time. So I find it very, very troubling right, that they they're doing that. And I asked them. I emailed them. I talked to a couple people already today asking, where, why is the data not there for 1983? What are we doing? Did you get an answer? Not yet. Hmm. Um, but I, I was surprised that at the National uh, Interagency Fire Center, someone picked up right away, and they transferred me to their public affairs people, and, and they need to get back. We'll see if they do. Hmm. But so what's going on? Are, so we the, trying to, are we trying to make it more alarmist than it is? I mean, what's go, what, why are we doing this? So – you're saying that they took away that earlier data to make like a stronger curve? It's not there. I thought it was I thought it was like some kind of conspiracy theory. And I went to their website and it's nineteen eighty three. It's gone. It's not there. And I mean this is like the evidence is so overwhelming. I mean, Stephen Pine goes into it, how much fires were more prevalent in the early 20th century. When I went to school, the common notion was nineteen forties is about the cutoff. And this data says that exactly. Fires have gone down. Okay, that's nationwide. Then in my own experience with Ashangam Ridge above Ellenville, 1940s, again, is where fires begin to go way down. Because everyone and their brother up until the 1940s was burning the ridge for blueberries, as we discussed two weeks ago. And my, my, my friend who used to write the books on the huckleberry pickers and how they used to burn the ridge, he has pictures showing the growth and density of the forest growing in the areas he's been going to since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. You know, so is there data available um, from all the fire watchtowers in the Catskills and Adirondacks? I mean, there's a whole programming, right? We've got we've got fire towers still up on top of these peaks. Yeah, People they're, monitoring not, the they're peaks. not being used, so that tells you something. We got rid of a lot of our fire towers. Um, they were replaced with planes because. Mm-hmm fires became so infrequent that planes were good enough and then over time since probably the 2000s we have aerial satellites it's just we don't get uh, as many natural fires as as the western united states does but to me climate change is like a cop-out for for a lot of politicians and stuff who have mismanaged their forests they have gotten these ladder fuels so badly and they were saying this 30 years ago in forestry school. 
These ladder fuels are building up. We're going to have some intense fires, not as much as the 20th century, but some of these areas that have been suppressed since the 1930s are going to have big fires. I thought we learned this in the Yellowstone fire in 1980 or whatever that was, but we didn't. So we are starting to have an uptick in fires a little bit. Not nearly as much as the 1930s, 40s, but, but Jesus, I don't know. What do you guys think? So without fires, what are what what are we going to have instead? We're going to have more, say, invasive species, more uh, deer browse impacts. Um, how's that going to play out throughout this century? It depends where you are, of course. If, if you're talking about, obviously, uh, we should talk about what we know. So in the northeast, it's going to become more maple and beech and birch, more of the northern hardwoods and less of the central hardwoods, which include oak, hickory. Um, and, well, if, if American chestnut was still alive, it would be more American chestnut, blueberries, sassafras, stuff like that, chestnut oak, pitch pine. Right? So it's going to be uh, kind of a diversity, loss of diversity of different species that, we, that used to be more prevalent? Yeah, and, and more pyrogenic species, you know, more of those fruit and nut trees that prosper in a disturbance regime of, or pyrogenic regime, right? But, I mean, you know, it's like, for example, comparing California to Texas, you can't just say, it's, well, the globe is warmer now. Well, I mean, Texas is hot as hell, but they manage their forests. It's mostly privately owned. They don't get the fires California does. California has been suppressing fires, and now they're having a lot, and they're building houses right in fires. Texas has huge ranches, and I bet you, I don't know this for sure, I bet you they're managing more there in Texas. Everyone in Texas, it seems like, they have this ranch culture, right, where they manage vast acreages of thousands of acres for the cow, the white-tailed deer, and everything in between, you know. But I don't know. I don't know that for sure. So I'm stepping out of my, my, my realm there, but... The Northeast, we definitely don't have more fires. No. Do you know? I, I have no idea. What, what's even sparked? What's even caused these fires in Canada? I mean, what's uh, what's burning? I mean, the boreal forest does include evergreens that right. are highly flammable. Spruce fir. Right. They're dried out. They probably have the same droughty conditions we have, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that does occur, you know. And those areas used to burn a lot when the paper companies were there. I don't know if the paper companies are there as much anymore. I mean, Maine. anecdotally, I mean, I've only been to Canada a couple times, but I went for a fishing trip uh, several years in a row. And one year we went back, and the whole east side of that lake we went to, which was a huge lake, it was like 30, 40 miles long. It was all burned, burned, burned. And we were asking about it because to us, we were totally ignorant. We thought it was devastating. and. Um, you know, the locals said, yeah, it happens every now and then around here. They didn't seem as alarmed, in my opinion. No. Um, no. No. And so I think it's more of a, you know, like I said, I think it happens every now and then, probably around the paper companies. And um, we're just seeing the effects of it now because literally the smoke's reaching us. But, you know, is it unnatural? Is it an issue? Is it not? I mean, that's that's all well, again, going back to forestry school and when I was, you know, the forest rangers came and we did our, our fire training, um, when you learn about fire return intervals and, and for each ecosystem or each forest type has its own regime, like you said, and um, mm -hmm. these things do have regular occurrences throughout history. And you would think you'd want the data as far back as it goes 
because disturbances like that, you can't look at them in, in a short time frame and, and conclude anything significant. You need to look at, you know, all the data points you have as far back as you can uh, record them. So, I don't know, I think that's something that people don't realize, too, is that these are regular occurrences. Just like floodplains have regular times that they flood. There are certain forests that, and, and certain ecosystems that have regular times that they would naturally burn, whether, you know, humans were doing it or not. Mm. So... But 1983? That's not that's not even right. long ago. No, that's what I mean. I mean. I'm, I'm older than that. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not enough time for you to anyone to make a conclusion like fires are increasing because that's such a short window in the, in the uh, scheme of like all natural history. That's, that's complete malpractice, <laughs> yeah. as far as I'm concerned, to be that short sighted. We have rotations as foresters twice as long as right. that. Okay, for managing timber. Um, the Silvics, if you go to the Forest Service, they have return rates per species. It'll say, you know, silviculturally how you want to manage for cut, through cutting or through fire. Like like even on mountain laurel has a 50, 25 to 50 year return. Right. And if you don't do that, you start losing mountain laurel, chestnut oak, pitch pine. I mean, you go down the line. These mm -hmm. things have been studied for a long time. 1983? Right. <laughs> what, yeah. what are we doing? We're, we're ignoring forest management and we're ignoring policy things that people have instituted state by state because of climate in 1983. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is not – I'm not saying the climate isn't negatively impacting forests. I'm saying we're undervaluing policy and, and forest management. That's all. I mean 1983. What, what happened to the data? Yeah, so you have – that's a – what, like a 40-year snapshot um, compared with, you know, the past 200 years of land use and what fire, uh, how fire was used and how it occurred historically. Um, I guess what's changed back since then was how people lose, use their land and um, I guess the extent density of uh, humans on the land. So, yeah, I don't know. But um, I'm going to try to get Stephen Pine back on the show, uh, University of Arizona or Arizona State University, and um, he's just a wealth of information. I'm also going to try to get people from maybe the USDA um, to, talk, to talk to talk about this as well. But I mean, you know, geez, I mean, I've been I've been reading symposiums, consortiums since that occurred since the early 2000s in Arkansas, for Christ's sake, where they were talking about the lack of fire. And that how they're losing their oak in Arkansas since the early 2000s, and, and then all of a sudden we're, we're saying there's more there's more fire. Yeah, maybe in the last 40 years, but to ignore since 1920 or even 1890. Have you ever yeah. talked to anybody from the Albany pine bush? I know they burn there regularly, um, prescribed burns. I'm not sure if it's every year or you know every few years, but yeah. They might be worth talking to since they're in New York. Yeah. Right. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know who manages that. Region 1, I guess, right? No, Region 1's Long, uh, Long, Long Island, Island, isn't it? Region, yeah, whatever that That'd is. That would be Region 4 or <clears throat> five. 5. 4 or 5. One of those up there in Albany. But uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest, and uh, this is Forestry Check-In.
from a distant fire this is that's the song i could i could think of for this what's going on with all this smoke coming in from from uh canada anyway this is uh from the forest every wednesday 6 to 7 p.m talk about a, a different forest related topic and tonight's topic is forestry check-in with ryan zane john and zara and just just talking about what we've been seeing out there so i guess we can move off of my rant on policy changes and being more important when it comes to fires and fires being more prevalent in the first half of the 20th century by five times no matter how you swing it acreage whatnot um and compared to the last 40 years but anyway <laughs> i'm looking at the chart now which i wasn't before and it's quite dramatic yeah it's, it's I, pretty I totally see it now so anybody's listening where can they find this information because this i mean this would so something I think people should see, really. I mean, Zane, it, it was everything that I've ever known when I went to school as well. But, I mean, Stephen Pine, who's – that guy is – you really should look him up. Um, you know, he goes into the history of fire not only in the world but U.S. fire and our policies from the 10 a.m. policies of, you know, the Forest Service starting to suppress fires. 
starting in the 1930s and, and really ratcheting up in the 1940s with all that used World War II uh, military equipment. They, they fought fires like they fought um, war, and it worked. Uh, we became very good at suppressing fires, and, and, and foresters were really the first people in the 30s to protect, in quotes, forests from fire and axe, right? That's what, and we borrowed our forestry culture from Central Europe, right? Germany, Jaegers, right? Jägermeisters. And they don't have fires as much in Central Europe. So fire bad. And we inherited that culture in forestry. And it's taken a lot of time to realize that there's also a consequence and impacts to suppressing fires. I'm not saying all fire is good. I'm not saying all fire is bad. I think there's a balance. And right now the pendulum has swung to uh, where we've suppressed fires for a long time. But I don't know. Well, aren't uh, even indigenous people who wanted to continue burning were made to stop too. And they've been saying the same thing that you're saying, basically, like we're letting fuels build up in the forest. The forest needs to be burned. Um, where they were regularly burning, so I think that also is something that supports that that perspective. You guys want to hear something freaky as hell when it comes to uh, like insect populations after a fire? Yeah. So I was hiking up in the on the ridge for two days, the Shawangunk Ridge. I didn't pull off one tick. Mm. What? Wow. You know how crazy that no, is, because this year's it. been terrible. It's a tick-prone yeah. Okay, if I walk yeah. in my yard, I get ticks. Yeah. Right. You know? All of a sudden, the second day, I'm like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> I didn't pull off one tick. Now, this area I was in didn't burn, and the area did burn, but the area I was in did burn uh, a few years back. But it's, you know, it's brushy. It should be ticks. Right. What is going on? So, I don't know. I mean, I do know southern southern people used to burn all the time to reduce chiggers and ticks, you know, all that stuff. Mm. You know, now is it is it more humidity from climate change, rainfall leading to more ticks, or is it the lack of fire? Maybe both. Maybe both. But we only hear about climate change. We don't hear about the fire suppression that's cultural change, policy change. We don't hear about that. That's my point. My point is that it's not climate change ever. My point is that what about what the humans are doing or not doing? The whole picture. The whole picture, yeah. I don't know why this is, you know, but you don't want to be labeled a, a climate denier just because right. you question yeah. something. But, Jesus, I mean, and we got to have some more, rationalism, huh? There's always more to the story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Zane? <laughs> I can't see your face, by the no. way. No, I'm, I'm just <laughs> thinking. I mean, I'm looking at this. I mean, this chart is surprising. I mean, this is uh, kind of shocking stuff. But you didn't um, hear about that in school? Like, uh, did you guys ever go into fire and, and uh, natural resources management or anything? No, no, not yeah. not in my my background. But um, yeah, so I think people are just really lacking this what historical perspective on the role of fire in the Northeast yeah. and how it played into people's land use. Um, so I think uh, yeah, people just have to look look at a wider historical frame to understand to make sense of what they're seeing today what's cool about fire is as stephen pine would say unlike other natural disturbances like hurricanes tornadoes right uh, earthquakes those don't need a living thing fire needs living matter to burn mm -hmm. 
And that's where humans have always been important. So that that's why with fire, it's more about what the humans are doing politically, forestry-wise, policy-wise. That really matters with fire. So Does that make sense? Right. It's the one natural disaster that's not totally natural. It's exactly. Right. Exactly. You know, and wherever there's humans, there's fire. And wherever there's wherever there's no humans, there's no fire. So an example would be the Arctic, the poles. They're frozen tundra and uh well they're worse than tundra. They're that's why they have no fire. <laughs> right? Yep. Uh, that's yep. a cool book. I really I really highly recommend it. But what do you guys want to talk about next? Hey, I peeled some uh, hemlock trees for bark. Like, yeah? Uh, yeah, I did it like it was 1864, man. Right. I, I was up there and peeling bark. Did like you it. skid that off the hill with a with oxen? No, I didn't oh, do that. That, that would have been really cool. <laughs> yeah. No, I skidded out with my <laughs> Toyota Tacoma. Cool. Cool. Yeah. No, I just, you know, just I just needed a little bark. So, but it's, I got to say, when you stack that bark on the ground and, and look at it, it's pretty cool looking, you know. Now, these hemlocks were already dying, from unfortunately, from the hemlock woolly adelgid and elongate hemlock scale, uh, which is unfortunate. But the bark, man, I love it. I love the way it smells and uh, I like the way it peels. And I got a bark spud, which is the same type of bark spud they would have used back in the day. And one of our members found one of those in an old hemlock swampy area of Delaware County near uh, Masonville, and I have it in the office, and it looks exactly the same. It's pretty cool. Nice. But those people, man, they must have worked their butts off, man, because you got to be out there in the hot days and peeling bark all day. Then you come back, I guess, in the winter and when there was snow, right? But due to climate change, there's no snow. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but seriously, though, um, they'd come back in the winter, I guess. <laughs> Take them out. Yep. So you're tanning deer skins with that? Yeah, deer skins. Yeah. Uh, to to leather. So right. not buckskins. Buckskins is where you take that uh, grain off and you make like a chamois almost. Hmm. That would be what mainly Native Americans, I guess, made. Right. Leather is where you keep the grain. So your wallet, your your let your your belt. That's full grain leather. The the grain's still on. So that that's from vegetable tanned or chrome tanning. So this would be vegetable tanned. Right. It's awesome, you know. Humans have figured this stuff out, you know. Yeah, I've I've been intimidated by the tanning process. I've got some mink pelts in my freezer that I've been meaning to tan, and I want to keep the fur on. I understand it's a it's a little more tricky when you're trying to keep on the fur, but no, it's easier. Oh, really? With fur on? Yeah. I think so. Well, it's one less step. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Yeah. But I guess it's easy for the, the fur to slip off um, if you're not doing something in a timely man- manner, is what I've read. I don't know. I, I can help you with it, but um, no, you're never going to put it in the lime. Mm-hmm. Right. And the lime is like a basic solution. That would strip the hair. I put it in right. lime because I want to get it off. Right. So you skip that step, basically, and, and you go right into the, the tanning the solution. Tanning. Right. But, um the flushing isn't as important as people think. You'll eventually get it all. Because you have to work it constantly, don't you? Just twice. I've learned a lot. They're all little nuances. Right. Uh, I, if you go too much after you've limed, you can ruin your grain. But that doesn't matter with mm-hmm. the hair on. So right. the hair on's easier in yeah. some ways. The only disadvantage with putting it in hemlock liquor with hair on is that it'll be a little stained. But if you like that, it kind of looks yeah. cool, yeah. I think. Well, I mean, they have dark fur anyway, so right. I imagine it wouldn't really, you know, if you were 
tanning and, something uh, that, white, you know. <laughs> their, their fur is darker than the tanning solution. Right. But you mentioned flesh. There, there's not much on them to flesh off. Exactly, yeah. Uh, what is this again? Mink? Mink. Mink. You just yeah. cut very little fat. You just cut it off with a yeah. knife. Yeah. I wouldn't even get. I wouldn't even touch it with a flushing knife. No. All over a beam, you'll probably yeah. rip it. It's it's so thin. Yeah. It yeah. probably would tan in like a week. Yeah. So where are these skins so, now? <laughs> they're uh, they're in my freezer. They're they're rolled up. So I I skinned the mink and then you know discarded the mink. I do have their brains because I thought you know maybe I'd try at least one of them uh, brain tanning. Yeah. They're surprisingly small. Well, I guess not surprisingly. They're mink are small animals. I mean, it's not that surprising. No, it's not. Oh, really small, but uh, yeah, they're they're tiny. But um, yeah, they're just in my freezer waiting to be defrosted and waiting for me to try my hand at. Yeah. the tanning so we'll see how it goes i don't know when i'm going to do it the, the best book if you if if you want to know how to make um buck skins which you know if you take the grain off with the brain tan is is uh matt richards's book mm, mm-hmm. um, deer skins the buck skins yeah excellent yeah he's a real good teacher it's concise yeah. he doesn't ramble and he has it all thumb tabbed per step mm. right brings you step by step yeah yeah, I'll put that one on my list. I got a different book about uh, home tanning furs, but it, I think it's from, like, the 1800s or something, and the language in it is all, you know, how they used to describe things all extra complicated and tanning not much. <laughs> leather is, 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 is difficult because there's all little nuances right. and stuff, and mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a mess. But And, and you can't. They're very secretive people. They're more secretive than fly fishermen or even ginseng hunters. Yeah. They don't want to tell you the recipes and right. blah, blah, blah. But, yeah. Thanks. So John's still got a mink there for me. Take it tomorrow. <laughs> take it tomorrow. Keep forgetting to take it, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a chicken killer. It was. Yeah, so, I got him. What else you guys noticing? I've been getting to know uh, red oak. I've been splitting a lot of red oak lately. Um, I describe the smell as an, like an allspice. My wife says it's apricots. Apricots. But, you guys are all over the map, man. <laughs> you were just saying you went to a restaurant, you thought it was garbage, you thought it was great. I don't know. It, it, make, it sure. makes life interesting, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, it smells like waterbelling. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, it splits real easy, even the knots. Um... Yeah, yeah, we've been saying it for years. It's so underrated. No one ever talks about it. I don't know why. If you want to show off and split wood, you do red oak. Yeah. And if I make a YouTube video, I'm going to do red oak and be like, watch this. I'll be like, wow, he's so good. Yeah, do red oak uh, by hand and compare it to a comparative video. Yeah. And do like elm and a wood splitter. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, you'll really look good. Or have your friend do elm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I almost had an opportunity to take some elm firewood away, but you guys uh, no, don't do it. convinced me otherwise. No, it's Did, stupid. Yeah. yeah. It's real stringy, right? Well, Just there is a trick. There is a trick I've learned finally. Right, John? You got to take the ears off. Yeah, <laughs> split the ears off. Yeah, <laughs> that's the trick. Then you can split elm. You, you can't hit it. Not only can you not hit it dead on, you shouldn't even hit two thirds on. You got to hit it right on the edge, and uh-huh. just keep going around and around. And then you can actually split that damn tree. Yep. Yeah, my dad taught me that trick, and always split 
from the top down. So if you figure out which way the tree grew, yeah. he swore, and I, I believe it I agree to, some, with that. to some extent, split the tree from the top down. Uh. I do agree with that. I do agree with that. I don't know if it's for sure, but I, I feel like that's what I do. I, I don't know, because I always do it now. So it's like, yeah. it's just my way of doing it. You know, I, not to, uh, you said it smells like apricots or whatever. I think it smells like pickles. So we're just okay. Who's being off. weird now? Okay. <laughs> Ooh, man, uh, I don't know. It's yeah, when it's, it's fresh, tannic smelling. Yeah, it's got right? a kind of a rancidness to it, but uh, yeah, I guess it's kind of a briny, pickly smell. Very interesting. Oh yeah, I mean you can use oak to tan as well. Uh, red oak, chestnut oak is supposed to be superb, but I can never figure out when the daggone bark comes off on chestnut oak. Hmm. So probably spring but i've tried no it's a pain it's not like hemlock hemlock wants to come off it's great would it still be just as tannic years later because the bark's going to slip off your firewood rounds if you let us sit there for two years i don't know people say that you might leach a little bit on the bark but i don't know that's definitely a way to get the bark off yeah it's true it's true but yeah because i throw out a lot of bark and i burn it but you can't beat hemlock, man. We're, you know, we're pretty blessed to have it. It's pretty yeah. good. Plus, there's so much of it dying. But um, let's see. Let's see. What else you guys got? Any other pest issues out there in the forest besides the gypsy moth? No, nope, just frost and gypsy moth. Frost and gypsy moth, yep. They'll regrow if they're healthy trees. Uh, if you are if you want to protect them for next year, you can inject them with emamectin benzoate. But, uh, you know, Catskill Forest Association does that. You might be able to drench them. I'd have to look at the label. Don't quote me on anything, but imidacloprid's another one. You can do a little drench around there. Uh, usually that's general use. Maybe a homeowner has access to that at Lowe's. I don't know if they still do, but Bear Tree and Shrub used to sell that 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 uh, chemical that you could you could put around there, and it'll it'll kill it. But um, or BT if you can aerial spray it, which obviously on a large tree is going to be difficult. But we have one member they just had aerial spraying done by plane. On their oak trees, and that's thuricide, which is B- uh, BT, Bacillus thuringiensis, and um, doesn't kill a lot of the beneficial insects. So that's that's probably the most least toxic way to go, but obviously going to be a little more money, right? Yeah, you got to pay for that airplane. Got to play for the jet fuel, <laughs> you know. So if you want more information on that, I can get you it. Not so much pests, but just kind of interesting insects I've seen. I've seen a lot of on uh, trees and tubes that I've, I have um, bagworms. So these are tiny little insects that kind of build this case around them with small kind of debris. And they, they, stuck, they stick themselves to the side of the um, tube, and eventually they'll hatch out of that and start feeding on your trees. So if you see these little kind of weird stick-shaped uh, things on your tubes, I just... Pick them off and drop them on the ground. Jesus. And Smush I, them with your foot? No, um, I just drop them on the ground. Burn them with fend, a lighter? Fend them. <laughs> no. 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 Eastern tent caterpillar are kind of bad. Yeah, I've seen them. Yeah, they, seen they're them the ones around. that make uh, real tents in the crotches of fruit trees. Yeah, you're right. I found them in a bunch of young cherry trees this year. Yeah. Not to be confused with fall webworm. Right. Which is not as bad because at least it's in the fall. Right, I don't like any of them, but eastern tent caterpillar is worse because now the tree has to refoliate. But any other pests or I don't know. Spittlebugs? You ever heard of spittlebugs? 
No? I mean, uh, yeah, I've heard of them, but... I see a lot of those now. Um, so that's kind of like a, a... I think it's in the like an aphid family. Or not aphids, but maybe like true bugs. But the larvae um, kind of spit around themselves and encase themselves, I guess, in their own spit to protect from predators. And you usually see them clinging to things like goldenrod and other wildflowers growing up. So disgusting. I was showing. Um, I was showing a. What's that white foamy stuff? Yeah. yeah. I was showing. Ah. A, I was showing a young young yeah. kid those, and she was kind of scared, but you curious get them on at the same time. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Well. Is then. there anything you guys been being asked uh, by people that you might want to say over the airwaves that you answer a bunch of people's questions? Any trendy questions going on, or things that excite you that have been going on? Things that annoy the hell out of you? Like what? What's going on? Uh, man, the one that just popped in my head—we've already <laughs> talked about it. It's, people keep calling me this week about their uh, their oak trees. Yeah, which is weird because what are my people like? Are lagging several weeks? They've looked like crap for three weeks now. Yeah, and <laughs> now now we're getting phone calls. <laughs> I get the ash phone calls because uh, I've injected a bunch of them, mm. and it's like, well, I guess the end of the ash, but we're finally got the tree, and it's like, no, 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 that's, that's frost. Thank God, jeez. Right. You know? I've, I've been getting calls, emails. Um, with photos of some trees I've planted that have gone through kind of have symptoms of transplant shock, which is common in you know tree plantings. Well, how would you define the transplant shock? What tells you that that happened? So you see uh, parts of the tree that just don't leaf out. Usually the top of the tree, um, and if it doesn't leaf out, it'll usually just kind of die back a bit. Yeah. So it's kind of the tree responding to uh, the new site, um, maybe. Uh, the watering that's been done to it or lack thereof um also a lot of the trees we plant we prune the roots because they usually have issues like a circling kinked uh girdling roots that need to be corrected at planting so you're removing some of the root system and the tree's compensating for that loss but it's all right <laughs> because if you're watering your tree you know and it's protected uh it should bounce back God, Zane, you know, this whole, it's amazing how in the last 15, 17 years, right, I've been looking up research on tree planting. And now I've seen this contradiction amongst arborists and foresters. It used to be three to one. Yep. Do you guys know what I mean by that? Root to shoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, or shoot the root, rather, right? Meaning the foliage to the to the root for our listeners. And then... Now, when you took your certification test for for arboriculture for International Society of Arbors, they're saying no, that's no, that that doesn't matter. Hmm. Remember that on the test? Do you remember that? Yeah, I think I think it was a rule that worked for things, but I think with so many trees nowadays and cultivars, it just doesn't apply applies broadly anymore. It's just not helpful. I know, but geez, anecdotally, I feel like. It does apply to certain trees, mm-hmm. and I can't tell you which trees. I just know when I see it. I'm like, man, that tree. I had a mulberry. I did that. I had to prune its roots because they were terrible, and it died back, and, and I saw it starting to happen. I pruned the top right away. I was like, I'm doing it. I don't care. I know right. you're not supposed to. It helped. I swear it helped, but I don't know. It's just one of those things like you wonder if another 10 years they're going to go back. You know what? That <laughs> three-to-one thing was not so bad. It's tough because, I mean, yeah. like you said, you have to prune the roots on some of these trees. You can't just leave it. No. Um, things have to be corrected, you know, and that's your only chance to do it is at planting, and sometimes you just have bad roots. Um, so, yeah, but um, 
Yeah, usually the tree will go through some shock, but if it's adequately watered, it, it should bounce right back. The watering's an issue. Watering's an issue. It's been really dry the last this summer yeah. so far, spring rather, and last summer was terrible. So, but I so. just got trees in the mail over Memorial Day. No, well, what yeah, but I, I ordered them in March. They were supposed to come. They were supposed to come end of April. <laughs> I got them Memorial Day weekend. When I got home from work, as we're heading out of town, oh, and it was hot, yeah. hot as heck, and when I got home, it was still dry as heck, and it just really made me angry about, uh, yeah, so I probably lost seven trees this weekend. What I planted were, them. We'll what see. were you planting? I did two shell bark hickory, because I learned about them on this show. Oh, they were really neat. Two white oak, uh, and three different apple varieties, stamen wine sap, uh, early harvest, and... I forget the third one. Yeah. Well, it, it's crazy. I've learned that, you know, some things can bounce back if you're there to water them. I had some pears and peaches that I got, and I left them in the box a little too long. Yeah. But they were completely desiccated, wrinkled, the stems were. Buds died, but they're leafing out now. They can come back. They can Trees come back. These are tough. Adaptive little guys. Anyway, that's all the time we have them from the forest. See you next week. Have a good night. The old man came home from the forest. His tears fell on the sidewalk as he stumbled in the street. A dozen faces stopped to stare, but no one stopped to speak. For his castle was a hallway, and the bottle was his friend. And the old man stumbled in. Cold around him as upon his cot he lay And he wondered how it happened that he'd ended up this way Getting lost like a fool in the forest And as he lay there sleeping a vision did appear So dear, but loved him in the springtime of a long forgotten year when the wildflowers did bloom in the forest. She touched his grizzled fingers and she called him by his name, and then he heard the joyful sound of children at the Above the 